Good morning. Today's the, uh, you know, I was just noticing that the people that come in on the 915 bus are, um, <laughs> they're, they're really going to be disappointed, I guess. Huh? But uh, today, uh, today is the uh, sixth and final message in a series of messages that have focused our attention on the events leading up to and also, as we'll examine today, including the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, up to this point, as we've traveled on the road, we've learned that uh, things aren't always as they appear at first glance, and it's very important that we take a careful examination of the uh, facts so that uh, we can ascertain what the actual truth is. And uh, I heard a story not too long ago that I think you'll appreciate, and it's, um, it's about a young man who apparently had some money and didn't know what to do with it, had more dollars, as they say, than cents, and he went out and he bought himself a... Uh, a 1998 Ferrari GT, sticker price, $500,000. So he drove it off the lot, and as he was driving down the road, he was excited about this new car that he bought, and he pulled up to a red light, and as he pulled up to the red light, along pulling alongside of him was, was, was a man that looked like he was about 90 years old, and the moped looked like it was about 90 also. And so the, the older man, as he pulled up next to him, looked inside, knocked on the window. The guy wound the window down, or no, actually, it went down automatically. You don't wind them down anymore. But uh, he looked inside and said, man, this is a pretty fancy car, Sonny. And, uh, and the young guy looked up and said, yeah, it's a Ferrari. He goes, $500,000. The old man looked at it and said, hey, do you mind if I look inside? And he said, no, no problem. So he kind of leaned inside, looked around, came back out and said, man, that's a really nice car. Why does it cost so much? The guy said, because it goes from zero to 320 miles an hour in six seconds. He goes, wow, that's pretty interesting. He kind of leans back. He's looking at it. And just then the light turns green. So the young guy thinks, hey, I'm going to show this guy what this thing can do. Boom! All of a sudden, he looks down at speedometer. He's going 310, 315. It tops out at 320. He looks back in the rearview mirror, and he sees a little dot way back there. So he slows down a little bit, but the dot's getting closer. The dot's getting bigger. He's looking, he can't figure out, now what in the world could be catching up with him? He looks in the side view mirror, and uh, all of a sudden he goes, man, that looks like the old guy on the moped. He goes, Ew! it goes past him. He still can't figure out what's going on. He looks, and that dot's way up in, the, in, the, in front of him, and the guy just sitting there trying to figure out what's going on. All of a sudden, here comes the dot again. Ew! The guy goes, that is the guy in the moped. Looks back in the rearview mirror again, and here comes the dot. Now, this time, the dot doesn't go flying past him. The dot's coming right to the back of the Ferrari. Boom! Guy jumps out of his Ferrari, goes back to the back. Sure enough, it's the old guy laying on the ground with his moped, and the, guy, and the young guy just bought the Ferrari. goes back, oh, man, are, are you okay? You look like you're hurt. Is there, is there anything I can do for you? And the old guy's laying on the ground. He goes, yes, Sonny, uh, could you unhook my suspenders from your side view mirror? <laughs> Anyway, you can share that with the people coming in at 920. Hey, but the, the point is, um, it really does pay to consider carefully the facts. Thus far in our series, we've seen that uh, Jesus reaches out continually to seek and to save that which was lost. And uh, we met Zacchaeus on the road to Jerusalem. We saw how Jesus reached out and touched his life, and here was a man who no one thought could ever be forgiven. Not only was a rich man, but he was rich because he was a thief. And so he was the lowest form of, of uh, life that they knew at that particular time, and yet Jesus reached out and touched him. And we saw as Jesus was dying on the cross that one of the thieves next to him, 
also reconsidered who Jesus was and asked him to forgive him as well. And, and our Lord promised him that day that he'd be with him in paradise for believing in him. Now it's fascinating as we see the people that responded to the invitation of forgiveness that Christ offered, there were always those who would not respond. There was the rich young ruler who knew something was missing in his life and when confronted with that was, turned around and walked away, afraid to give up that which he had to gain that which he could never lose. And it's, I think it was Eliot who said, you know, a, a man is no fool who gives up that which he cannot hold to gain that which he can never lose. Here was a man who could not hold his riches because one day he'd have to be accountable before God and yet he was afraid to give up that which he would never be able to hold anyway to gain that which Christ had to offer that he could never lose. And we saw not only in, in the rich young ruler, but we saw in many people, the multitudes of people, the other thief on the other side of Jesus who continued to curse God even to the point up to his death. You would think that the man would have been broken at that point, but yet he still continued to curse God and challenge God. And uh, we see that often in life. We see people that you would think by now should be broken, and yet they continue to shake their fist in the very face of God. The multitudes of people who, who followed him into the city of Jerusalem, shouting out that salvation has come from above, that, that wanted to, to help, help him if they could set up his kingdom here on earth. It was but a few days later that they were shouting for him to be crucified. And so as we look at this, it's interesting. It's been said that the, the, uh, the gospel rests upon two great pillars. The first pillar is that Jesus died for our sins. And the second great pillar is that he rose again from the dead. And if you've got your Bibles, we're going to take a look at Matthew's account of this resurrection that we see in Matthew chapter 28. Now the book of Matthew is a book that paints or pictures or portrays Jesus as a king. And he's the king of the Jews. We saw that already, if you recall from this trial before Herod, we saw that Jesus basically was accused of being the king of the Jews. And he didn't deny it. And he says, it is as, as you say. I am the king of the Jews. But more importantly than that, in fact, it was even Pilate who had the superscription written above Jesus' head on the crucifixion that says, this is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And so they recognized this title, and yet the Bible says that Jesus is even more than just King of the Jews. The Bible tells us that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, that He is King of all, over all of creation. And it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that validates this claim. There is no other ruler, no other king, no other holder of any kingdom that has ever conquered death. Every one of them throughout the history of the world, there are places that recognize the place of their burial, and if it's not the actual place, it is at least a memorial that's set up to the remains of the one who sat on the throne. But Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us, rose from the dead. He conquered death. And there is no other king in the history of the world that ever did that. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. And this is what we'll see in Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 28 as he portrays for us this king not only of the Jews, but the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, as we look at this, there's basically four things in this final chapter of the Gospel of Matthew um, that helps us to understand this victory. And not only the victory that Jesus had over death, but also the victory that we have because of His victory over death. And there's four things I want to point out to you as we go through it. And rather than read the whole chapter, I want to break it down and we'll take it bit by bit. But the first thing is this in Matthew 28. Look at verse 1. We read these words. It says, Now after the Sabbath... As it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. It's interesting as we look at this because it's important to understand they were convinced, they were convinced that Jesus was dead. 
It's important that we understand that Jesus was dead, that he did die on the cross. It's, in, it's incredible as we look at the evidence, it's overwhelming. There was no doubt about it. And in fact, we're told in the Gospel of Luke that the women who lingered and were the last people at the cross were also the first ones to show up in this particular morning. They were the last ones there. They were the first ones to show back up. There was no question in their mind that he was dead. In fact, Luke 24, 1 tells us that they went and they went and got spices together to prepare for his burial. So the women that lingered at the cross that came first in the morning recognized the fact that he was dead. There was no question about it. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus knew that Jesus died as they took his body off of the cross. And they, and they placed it in the tomb. Joseph had already purchased this tomb according to the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 9 where he read that, and he, speaking of Messiah, made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Can you imagine the excitement as Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus searched the scriptures to see if any prophet, if any Messiah could come from Galilee as he accused uh, the Sanhedrin and the council and they said to him, hey, what are you from Galilee too that you're sticking up for him? They say, go and search the scriptures and see if anything good can come out of Galilee. As they searched the scripture, they began to realize that yes, indeed, the Messiah could come from wherever God wanted him to come from. And they read Psalm 22, they read Psalm 53. And here it was as they read this, the excitement that they must have felt as they were reading Isaiah 53, where the Bible, where the scriptures told that Jesus would be counted among the transgressors and yet he would be buried with the wealthy. You know, it was custom at that point in time, but when you were convicted felon of any sort that died under, under terms of crucifixion, that your body was never given a proper burial, that you were thrown into the town garbage heap with all the rest of the garbage to make a point that you weren't even worthy of a proper burial. And what's fascinating was that Nicodemus stayed at the cross of Jesus after his death to make sure nothing happened to the body while Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and said, hey, we want to bury him. Now what's interesting is that Pilate made sure that Jesus was dead because it was important to him to make sure that the execution was carried out according to the law. And so he sent for a soldier, and, and, and they sent a soldier to the centurion who was responsible for the crucifixion, and he said, hey, did he really die? And it was affirmed and confirmed by those who was at, that, that were at the site of the cross that, hey, yeah, Jesus did die. He's dead. And therefore, Pilate released the body to Joseph and Nicodemus. The soldiers at the cross knew that Jesus died. How did they know? Because when they went to break his legs, as they broke the legs of the other thieves to hasten death, they realized that he, he, that he was already dead. And according to Scripture, that his, his bones would not be broken. Another fulfillment of prophecy that took place. They didn't have to break his legs because he was already dead. The soldiers checked his side and they, they thrust a spear into his side to make sure that he was indeed dead. There was no question about the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross. And the reason I want to make that very clear, it's important that we understand that that was from the beginning of the foundation of the world, the plan of God to redeem man back to himself. Turn with me to John chapter 10 for a second. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John chapter 10, and listen to the words of Jesus himself as he discusses with his disciples this very act that he would, that he would endure. It says in John chapter 10, we read these words, starting with verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, beholds the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hireling and he's not concerned about the sheep. That's kind of the difference between an owner of a business and an employee of a business. 
there's an owner mentality that's a little bit different than that of employees. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, you know what? The good shepherd doesn't run away when trouble comes. In fact, he goes on and says, I'm the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. He says, and even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they shall hear my voice and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. What he was saying was that one day the Gentiles also would answer to his voice. That the people of God were the Jewish people from the very beginning. But he said, I've got others that are not of this fold. They're not of this flock. But you know what? They'll hear my voice one day and they'll all be part of my flock. And so Jew and Gentile, the invitation was offered to all. Whosoever would come may come and find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. He goes on and says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. It's important that we understand that Jesus Christ went to the cross voluntarily. He wasn't an unwilling sacrifice. He said, I lay it down on my own initiative. I'm doing it. Why is he doing it? Hebrews 12 tells us this, that Jesus endured the pain and despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. He saw that salvation through him on the cross, the death on the cross, was the only way that heaven would be opened up to any one of us. He saw and endured the pain and despised the shame, the mockery of those who came by and made fun of him, the things that were going on at the very foot of the cross. He endured all the pain. He despised all the shame because he knew how it was all going to turn out for the joy that was set before him. That one day you and I, because of his death on the cross, if we believed that, would then have life eternally given to us that we would spend an eternity with God in heaven because of what Jesus did on the cross. See, the, the, the cross was God's plan from the very beginning. And we need to recognize and understand Jesus didn't go unwillingly. In fact, you know what? Look at Matthew chapter 26. Go back to where we were. But look at verse 51. This is, an, this is interesting to see. Because in Matthew 26, look at 51 through 56. This is something that's taken place in the garden. And it's fascinating as we look at this. It says in Matthew 26, 51, as Judas came and betrayed him, it says, And behold, one of those, speaking of Peter, who were with Jesus, reached and drew out a sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. His name was Malchus. And Peter reached in, grabbed the sword, and cut off his ear. And it says, And Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall surely perish by it as well. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? You see what he said? This is fascinating because Jesus said, Now, Peter, I mean, do you really think I need your help? I mean, you've been with me long enough that you've seen me raise people from the dead. You've seen me heal lame people that never walked. You've seen me open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. You've seen me do all these things. I fed multitudes of people, 20,000 people, with a couple scrawny fish and some loaves of bread. I mean, you see me do all this, and you think I need your sword to get me out of this. You still don't get it, do you? See, what he was saying was, hey, you know what? This is how Scripture, the Word of God, would be fulfilled. The death of Jesus Christ was God's plan before the foundation of the world. As the only way... Listen to me, it is the only way that man can ever get into the presence of God. 
It's the only door, the only entryway. Jesus said it. Hey, you know what? The road of destruction is broad, but the gate is narrow. I am the way, the truth, and life. There's no other way to the Father but through me. It's the only thing that's acceptable to God. Jesus Christ and His sacrifice on the cross is the only sacrifice that anyone ever has to make ever again in all of eternity to get us into the presence of God. It is the fulfillment of Scripture. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 15.3 under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, For I've delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Can you imagine Joseph and Nicodemus searching the Scriptures? Man, I can only imagine how exciting it was for them to search the Scripture to see that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world, the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist said, when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I can only imagine how exciting it is to go through and study Scripture and to realize as they're going through and they see Isaiah 53, 9, that Jesus would be dying on the cross with those who are wicked, that, they would, that his body would be thrown into the garbage heap as they always did, and yet God said that wasn't what was going to happen to Jesus, that Jesus would be buried with the wealthy. Now, can you imagine sitting there studying the Bible and, and going like this? Hey, you know what? Hey, I'm wealthy. I can go and buy the tomb. And I'll be the one that God uses to fulfill Scripture. I can't think of anything more exciting than to know that because of my obedience that I'm doing exactly what God said would happen before the foundation of the world 800 and some years before crucifixion in Isaiah, Isaiah wrote that a wealthy guy was going to buy a tomb that Jesus would be laid in because God wouldn't have his anointed one thrown in a garbage dump with all the other criminals because he was innocent. And he took upon him the guilt of the world on the cross. And Joseph is sitting there going, I can buy the tomb! And ran and bought the tomb and prepared for his burial and said, I am the one that God is using to fulfill prophecy. Isn't that fascinating? Now, the only difference between Joseph and us is that God wants to use us as well, but it isn't as clear to us because sometimes we go through and read the Bible and we don't realize how clear it really is that God wants to use you and wants to use me to fulfill what he says is going to happen in this world. But Joseph clearly understood that he was the man God chose to fulfill this particular prophecy. Now, what's interesting is this. Joseph had a choice. He could be obedient or disobedient. And the only one who would have lost out was Joseph. Because God was still going to make sure his anointed one wasn't thrown in a garbage dump and he was buried among the wealthy. You know what? I believe there was more than one wealthy guy that could bought a tomb. The only difference between those, those people and Joseph was Joseph didn't let anybody else have the chance because he was the one who was obedient to the word of God. Could you imagine the excitement then to buy the tomb, to hide out in the tomb and be hiding there as Jesus died on the cross knowing that at 3 o'clock that day that the Lord's Lamb would be slain just like the lambs were slain for that of the Passover? At 3 o'clock he knew and Nicodemus knew that Jesus would die on the cross and to be watching, them and watching whatever they had. I don't know, they probably didn't have a Timex or a Rolex or, or anything like that. Well, Nicodemus, I mean, like Joseph Arimathea probably had whatever was the nicest stuff. He had the coolest sundown. Um, Nicest rock, all polished. Anyway, and he's watching as that shadow clicked at 3 o'clock and Jesus said, it is finished, and he gave up his spirit. How excited he must have been. Everything was happening just as God said it was going to happen. Oh, man, I can't even imagine how exciting that is. The only way you can ever even feel that or sense that is to be obedient to, is to, be obedient to God in your life and have God use you to do something that you know only God could have done and you're just a small part of it. That's exciting stuff. 
And so as we look at this, they were convinced that he was dead. Jesus said, it is finished. There is no longer any sacrifice that any of us ever have to make ever again that will be more pleasing to God than the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. It is pathetic and it is tragic that we live in a world that wants to add to that. There is nothing else anyone can add to it. If you're here because you think you're sacrificing in some way that, that God will be pleasing because, pleased because you're at church, <laughs> you're wrong. If you've given stuff up because you think God will be pleased and that's what's going to get you into heaven, you're wrong. The only thing that will be pleasing to God is if you believe in the death of Jesus Christ as a substitute for your sin on that cross, that you believe what God says. He says the only work that's pleasing to God is that you believe upon Him in whom He has sent. That's it. They were convinced that Jesus was dead because He was dead. He did die. But what's interesting as we go through this is when they heard, can you imagine the excitement when they heard that He was alive? When they heard that he was alive, back at Matthew chapter 28, if you're following along in your Bible, which I hope that you are. Matthew 28, it's exciting as we look at this. Could you imagine? They heard that he was alive. They were convinced that he was dead. They came to prepare his body, and yet they heard that he was alive. I can only begin to imagine what went through their minds. Look at verses 2 through 8, and we read this. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his garment was white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He says, He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he was lying. And quickly, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And, and it says, And they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. Can you only imagine? I can only imagine the excitement that they felt as they went to prepare a body and realized that, you know what? They didn't have to do that. I don't even think they cared about how much they spent on all that stuff. They just left it all there. I can only imagine, as you have, if you have a loved one who has passed away, and you've gone to a funeral home and you've taken a look and the sorrow that goes along with that and you're convinced that that person is gone from this world and yet to realize that they went there and realized that he wasn't there the sorrow and the mourning and all that went with it they be, it was changed in a moment's notice that he hey you know what he's not here look at Luke 24 for a second I want to give you a parallel account that Luke gives of the same incident that takes place because I want to make a point and it's made a little better and more clearer in this particular gospel. But we read this, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb and they brought spices which they had prepared. It says, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened that while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling apparel. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. It says, And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It's important at this time that I call your attention to an interesting question that is raised in verse 5. And the question is simply this. It says, and as, as they're looking at, why do you seek the living one among the dead? 
Now, I don't want you to miss this because this is critical to understand what's going on here. This was not words of commendation. These were words of striking rebuke. What he was saying to these women was very simple, and that was this. Why are you here? Why are you here looking for the living among the dead? What are you doing here? Why did you come here? And they went on and said, Don't you remember that when he was with you, he told you that he would die, but three days later, he would rise again? Do you not remember his words? Jesus continually told the disciples that he must suffer, die, and on the third day be raised up again. And it wasn't a secret. In fact, back at Matthew chapter 27, if you look at uh, verse 63, one of the things that everyone was concerned about was that Jesus had told everyone he'd raised from the dead. In Matthew 27, 63, they were trying to protect this from taking place. It says, and they said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that that deceiver said, After three days, I am to rise again. So everybody heard it. Jesus never said it in secret. It, everybody was talking about it. People knew about it. Multitudes knew about it. And in fact, they wanted to be so careful that no one came to steal the body of Jesus so they could per perpetuate this so-called hoax that they sealed it with a Roman seal. They posted Roman guards there. And the whole reason that they did that was because not that Pilate cared about Jesus because he could have cared less whether they threw him in the garbage dump or somebody buried him. It didn't matter to him because dead is dead and he was dead and he wasn't worried about it. But what they were concerned about was, hey, if somebody came and stole the body, the worst thing that's going to happen was he told everybody he'd rise again, and if the body was missing, then somehow or another this conspiracy or this hoax would be worse than, than, than anything else that he ever did, which is fascinating. And so as we went through and we go through and look at all this, it's fascinating to take a look at it. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, Jesus over and over again made sure that everybody realized what was going on? In fact, you know what? Let's go to um, let's go, go to Matthew 26, verse 32. So nice to hear those Bibles flipping open like that. Listen to those pages turn. Some of your wrists starting to hurt already, huh? It said in verse 31, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. Because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. It says, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Okay, now, picture all this for a second. What's going on? Jesus told them every step of the way what was going to happen. In Matthew 16, he said the same thing. Hey, we're going into Jerusalem and here's what's going to happen. The Son of Man is going to be delivered up. He's going to be crucified. I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. But after three days, I'm going to rise again from the dead. He used Jonah as an illustration. He said just as Jonah was, was raised after three days in the belly of a whale, which was fascinating too, by the way, because Jesus illustrated that Scripture is true, whether you believe it or don't believe it or think it's incredible or stupendous or, or, or you know, beyond comprehension. Jesus said, hey, why is it so hard to believe that a man could live three days in the belly of a whale? What's going to be harder to believe, that Jonah lived in a whale or that I rise from the dead? That's what he said. What's harder for you to believe? What's harder for you to believe? Jonah lived in a whale or God created the universe with a word. What's harder for you to believe? Hey, you know, I don't have a problem believing Jonah could live three days in a whale. 
Because the Bible teaches that. The Bible says it's very clearly. And Jesus illustrated that truth by quoting scripture that had to do with Jonah. He said, after three days, I will rise again. Now, here's what Jesus said. And after three days, I will rise again and I will meet you in Galilee. Jesus never asked anyone to come to the tomb to see him. You know what? Here's a question for you. Where was Joseph and Nicodemus? Why when the ladies came back with the spices, why weren't Joseph and Nicodemus still there? I'll tell you why. Because Joseph and Nicodemus got it straight, and that was this. If God says it, I believe it, and I'm going to do what God says to do. If Jesus said he's going to meet us in Galilee, I believe Joseph and Nicodemus were in Galilee waiting to see Jesus as he promised he would show up. Now, why were the ladies there? And here's what the angels, the question the angels asked was this. What are you doing here? Did not Jesus tell you clearly to meet him in Galilee? Then why are you looking for the living one among the dead? Now it changes our whole concept of what was taking place here. The question was a rebuke. Don't you understand? And what did they do? They went through and said, remember what Jesus said, and they began to refresh their memory about the words of our Lord. The point is this. Many today still question God's word. Still question his word. Still seek a sign. Hey, you know what? There's no greater sign than the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is it. Case closed. Done. God's done trying to convince man that Jesus is the Messiah of the world. The Savior who takes away the sin of the world. It's a done deal. The resurrection is just one of many signs that God gave to validate the claims of God that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. You either believe that or you don't. You know, they heard that Jesus rose from the dead, and many today think it's still nonsense, just as the disciples did. The ladies ran back, told them that Jesus rose from the dead, and the disciples refused to believe it. In fact, it says they thought that what they were saying was nonsense, even though they too heard the same words of Jesus, that after three days he'd raised from the dead and he'd meet him in Galilee, yet they thought it was nonsense. See, we live in a world of people today that think it's nonsense. And what's so sad about it, what we do is we try to make it more palatable. We try to convince people, to sell it to people, to persuade people with human words and human wisdom and human actions of some sort. We try to sell it to people because it is so ludicrous that anyone would think that someone could raise from the dead. But the Word of God clearly says that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and that three days later He rose from the dead just as the Word of God says. We had a problem in our culture. And I want to show you that in a second, how deep that problem runs. The problem is that man does not believe the Word of God. And Jesus Christ will illustrate to us the importance of the Word of God that leads to belief in what God has to say. They heard that he was alive, but hearing this doesn't do you any good unless you act upon it. People hear it all the time. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus rose from the dead. People hear it all the time, but Jesus said this, unless you act upon my word, it's no good. It's meaningless. The wise man, what? Built his house upon the rock. The wise man built, took action. Faith is action. It's an action step. Action. So many of us hear the word of God, and yet we don't act upon it. It's foolishness. If God tells you to do something, do it. The angels illustrated that. If God, if Jesus said to meet me in Galilee, then guess where they should have been? They all should have been hanging in Galilee waiting to see him. This is an interesting thought. But it's this. 
You realize those women were just as disobedient as the guys who didn't show up? They're all guilty. They thought they were doing the right thing. They were sincere, but you know what? They weren't doing what was right either. Jesus said, meet me in Galilee. They went to the tomb. Jesus told the disciples, meet me in Galilee. They hid in a room. Okay, which one's less guilty? They're all guilty. Oh, but not in our minds. We say, well, at least the ladies were doing something. <laughs> but, but we all know how that is. You're always doing something. It's like, and the guys are sitting back in a recliner, and they're sitting in a chair with a channel changer. The ladies are doing something. Well, I've got to be doing something. Hey, well, if you're going to do something, then do the right thing. And don't confuse action for obedience. Right? Ooh. Hey, and it's not even Mother's Day. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Here's the deal. They thought he was dead. They heard he was alive. And this is the important point. They met him personally. They met him personally. And you know why they met him personally? Now, this is where we've got to give the women credit. And that is simply this. When they were told what to do, they did it. And as they were responding in obedience, in, Ma in Matthew 28, look at verse 9. They were told to depart, and they departed quickly. They were told to, to tell his disciples, and they told his disciples. They were obedient, and they understood at that point what it meant to be obedient. And then we see this. They departed quickly from the tomb with fear, great joy. They ran, and they reported to, to, to the disciples. They all thought they, they were nuts, but they weren't nuts. And look, it says, And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Why were they in the position to worship Christ? Because they met him personally through their obedience. Isn't that interesting? They met him personally. You know, what's fascinating to me is that, I don't know about you, but for many years, I grew up in an environment where I heard Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sin. I heard that he rose again from the dead, and I went to church on Easter, just like so many people do on Easter, and I went to church on Easter, and as I got older, I went to church and narrowed it down to Christmas and Easter. And uh, figured, you know, hey, Jesus was born, great. He died for my sins, that's nice to know. And he rose from the dead, so I covered uh, at least the biggies. Now the problem with that is I heard that, but I never believed that. I heard it intellectually, but I never welcomed into my life personally. See, these women, when they believed, their belief led them to falling down at the feet of Jesus and worshiping him. You know, Thomas wasn't in the room when Jesus appeared to the disciples, and Thomas said this, hey, you know what, I don't believe anything you guys say. They said, hey, we're telling you the truth, Jesus rose from the dead, we saw him ourselves. And he said, I don't care, I need more proof. He said, and the proof that I want is, I want to put my hands in his wounds. I want to put my fist in his side where they thrust the spear, and I want to put my fingers in the nail holes in his hand. And then when I see him, then I'll believe. Jesus appeared before Thomas. Thomas saw the risen Savior and fell to his face and said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus rebuked him and said, yeah, Thomas, you believe me now because you've seen me. He said, but blessed are all of those who do not see me and yet believe because of the testimony of the eyewitnesses that saw Jesus Christ. And believe because of the testimony of the word of God himself. Blessed are all those who believe because you believe based on what the word of God says that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Personally, I don't need to see Jesus anymore to believe that he rose from the dead. There was a point in my life where I heard he died for my sins, a point in my life where I heard he rose from the dead, but there was also a point in my life where, you know what, Jesus said he stands at the door and knocks. 
And if anyone hears his voice and opens his life to him and says, Lord, come in, forgive me for I'm a sinner, that God will enter his life, Christ will enter his life, the Spirit of God will enter your life, and behold, all things that are old become new. There's a point in every person's life where we have to act upon this message. There's a point where we need to make it personally ourselves. It's no longer good to hear something. It's like hearing that you've got a fatal disease, a terminal disease, and you hear that, hey, you know what, the only, the only cure for your disease is this prescription. You hear that the prescription will save you from your ailment. And you say, well, I heard that. Oh, yeah, I believe that. The only way you really demonstrate your belief is you act upon it. You run down to the drugstore. You have that thing filled. You follow the directions, and you take that prescription as it's prescribed to you. Then we know that you believe it. Then we know you have faith in the doctrine and the prescription. But until you open your heart and invite Jesus Christ into your life, you have not demonstrated that you really believe a thing that God has to say. See, these women met him personally because they opened their heart and said, my Lord and my God, like Thomas did, and they worshiped at the feet of Jesus Christ. There are people that come to church, they say they hear all this stuff, but you've never worshiped God, and the reason you haven't worshiped him is because you don't know him. There's a time coming, Jesus said, where people will worship him in spirit and in truth. The only way that you and I could ever worship God is by believing what he says about Jesus Christ, inviting him into our life for the forgiveness of our sins, and then we'll worship him as God because then we've tasted from the goodness of the Lord and we see that he's good. Isn't it interesting? You know, the Bible's filled with evidence of Jesus' at resurrection. And in fact, this is homework for you. Get excited about doing some homework. Read Acts chapter 2. I want you to read Peter's sermon in Acts 2, verses 22 through 35. It's important that you look at that. And the reason for it's very simple. Because God wants us to have evidence because our faith, the Christian faith, is reasonable. What I mean by reasonable is it is that which we can comprehend with reasoned minds that God has given us. We can examine the evidence. We can search the truth of Scripture. When we look at everything, we can come to conclusions. We can reason it and understand that what God's saying is true. In Acts chapter 2, Peter gives four, basically, four proofs for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in fact, Acts 2, we'll look at it real quick. I got a second. I'll go fast. And not that I don't trust it, you look it up on your own. But just in case you have a busy week. Acts 2, verse 22. It's interesting, in verse 14, actually, we take a look at it and it says, But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. He's saying, Pay attention, listen. Just the fact that Peter's standing there boldly saying anything, something tremendous has happened in his life. This guy is a coward. He ran away. A little girl accused him of being with Jesus. He swore at her, said he never knew him. And the rooster crowed three times. He denied our Lord. And now here he is taking a stand with the other 11 and boldly saying, hey, it's about time you listen to what I have to say. He goes on in verse 22. Look what we read. It says, that men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through, you, through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Here it is. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Look at it says, and God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. Okay, first proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is simply this. Take a look at Jesus of Nazareth. He said, hey, you know what? What Jesus did, he didn't do in secret. 
You all know about him. You all heard about him. Everybody was talking about Jesus. I mean, anywhere that he went, the multitudes were buzzing about it. Jesus is coming to town. Jesus, who's Jesus? Jesus, he's the guy, you know, who, who opened the eyes of a blind man, who raised a lame man and had him walk, who, who called Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth, and he came out of the grave. This is the man that, you know what, even, I mean, he, he could conquer death. His argument to them was a simple one. He said, what in the world are you thinking? Do you think that this man who could open the blind's eyes, who could open the ears of the deaf, who could cause the lame to walk and, and cause the dead to come out of their graves and be alive again? He said this very simply. Do you think that somehow death could hold him? You see his, the argument? Why do you think that he would die and not be able to conquer death when he's already demonstrated he was able to conquer death? His argument is very simple. Jesus Christ was not going to be held by any grave or death. He conquered it, and he already proved that he can conquer it. So his, his argument is very simple. Why are you so, so, so surprised that he would be raised from the dead? <laughs> this isn't hard to believe. Look at the second proof. He goes on and says this. I mean, he says uh, in, uh, in verse 31, or 25 through 31, he says, For David says of him, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope, because thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. He says, Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou wilt make me full of gladness with thy presence. What's his second proof that Jesus rose from the dead? He quoted Scripture. He said it right there. Verse 27, Nor allow thy Holy One, Messiah, to undergo decay. So Jesus wasn't going to rot in any grave. God had already promised that he'd raise him from the dead. And in fact, turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. <clears throat> Look at verse 13. Two of the disciples were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were conversing with each other about all these things which had taken place. And it came about while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. It says, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still and they were looking sad. It says, and one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? Everybody heard it. Everybody knew it. Everybody knew about who Jesus was. Everybody talked about his triumphal entry. Everyone talked about how he was put on trial before Pilate and Herod. Everyone talked about how even though he was innocent, they still condemned him and how he was, his cross was carried to, to the site for his execution, how he died on the cross, how darkness spread across the land for three hours, how there was a tremendous earthquake, how the veil of the curtain of the tabernacle was torn in two from top to bottom. Man, the place was buzzing. Everyone was talking. Now Jesus goes, hey, what are you guys talking about? And I was like, hey, do you not know? Where are you from? It says, and it says, and he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word in sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and other rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping, here it is, but we were hoping he was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things have happened. It says, but also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning, didn't find his body. They came saying they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women had said, but him they did not see. Okay, listen carefully. And Jesus said to them, O foolish men, 
and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. It says, Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Don't miss that. Jesus didn't say to them, Hey, check out these wounds. Put your fist in, the, in my side. Put your fingers in the holes in my hand, in my wrist. Jesus didn't say that, did he? You know what Jesus did? He quoted scripture. From Moses and all the prophets, he showed them how God had already told them what to expect. He quoted scripture. Listen to me. God promises that his word will go forth and will not come back empty. The weapon that God gives us to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ is the word of God. Man always trying to come up with something better, something new, something improved, something more creative, something more dramatic. We're always trying to reach people because, you know what, you don't take a Bible into Bible study and teach from the Bible, do you? You don't take a Bible into the locker room at an angel game and actually open the Bible and teach guys from the Bible, do you? You didn't do that when you were at the Rams, did you? Let me tell you something. I have nothing to offer anybody. If I got 10 or 15 or 20 minutes, let me tell you something. I better just be offering them this. I better open the book and I better explain it to them. Why? Because God promises that his word will go out and it will never come back empty. We're not to persuade people with our own philosophies of life and our own opinions about things. We're not to try to sell them on something by using something dramatic to get it across to them. We're to open the Word of God and we're to preach the Word of God because God promises to use this to reach men for Jesus Christ. We need to understand that. If Jesus will quote Scripture, why shouldn't we? When the man was in Sheol or Hades, and he said, let me go back and tell my brothers that this place really exists. And then they'll believe in you. They'll believe in judgment. They'll believe in hell. They'll believe in the life after this life. They'll believe in all this. And Jesus said, they're not going to believe you. You come back from the dead and tell them that you were dead and now that you're alive again and there's a place called hell and there's judgment if you don't believe in Christ, how you're going to end up in hell. They're not going to believe a thing that you say. And you know why he said that? He said, because they had the prophets. They had the word of God. And they doubted God's very word. What's your word to, the, to, to that? you understand what he's saying? He's saying we've got the word of God. We've got the truth. And the truth sets people free. Jesus quoted from scripture. Nothing will ever be as effective as opening the word of God and teaching people what God has to say about life. We need to recognize it. It's interesting. Jesus said a couple of things. Look at what he says. You're foolish people. He says you're foolish. He says to them, oh foolish men of slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Pasquale said this, human knowledge must be understood to be believed. He says, but divine knowledge must be believed to be understood. Do you understand what he's saying? He says that you and I can't believe a thing that God says until we say, Lord, help me in my unbelief. Help me in my unbelief. And you know what's amazing? That simple, humble prayer, God, I don't understand this, but I know this much, that I'm a sinner and I'm not ready to die. And if you say believing in Jesus Christ is the only thing that's going to protect me from judgment and eternity in hell, then I'm going to put my faith and trust in Him. 
Help me to believe. Help me to understand the truth of your word. Help me in the simplicity of that prayer. You know what's amazing to me? Intellectual people all over the world stumble over this. You know why? Because God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He has chosen the gospel, the cross, as a stumbling block to the Jews and as foolishness to the Gentiles. God has chosen his way and his way alone. And that's all there is to it. And that's the only way God gets all the glory and the credit. And so what he's saying is, you know what? Simple-minded folks that just have a simple faith in God, you know what? They understand profound wisdom. You know why? Because when you invite Jesus Christ in your life, the Spirit of God comes into your life. And that's what? God's Spirit helps lead you into all truth. Before I was a Christian, I tried to read the Bible, and the Bible was foolishness to me. It didn't make any sense. It was ludicrous that somebody could live in, a, in the belly of a whale. It was ludicrous, all the stuff that I tried to read. I didn't understand any of it and didn't have any interest in it. But I'll tell you this, when I asked Jesus Christ to come into my life, and the Spirit of God came into my life, and I opened the Bible, and all of a sudden, you know what? God's Spirit leads us into all truth. You start to read this, and you go, this is true. This makes sense. I understand it. But the only way you can do that is you have to believe first. You have to put your faith in God first. You have to act personally first, which is what? To believe what He says. Lord, come into my life. Save me from my sin and from judgment. I believe Jesus died on the cross. Lord, I don't understand it, but I want to believe it. Help me in, in my unbelief. And God says that He will. The evidence is overwhelming that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The problem is not that the evidence doesn't exist. The problem is, is that we just simply refuse to believe. God says that we need to believe and have faith in His Word. That His Word is truth. That His Word sets people free. It's fascinating as we go through all this. You want more proof? How about this? Here's a conspiracy. They took the soldiers. The body was missing. They would have killed these soldiers, but they knew something supernatural took place. So they couldn't even judge Him for that. They took these soldiers and said, Hey, look, we'll pay you off. Just tell the people that somebody stole the body. Talk about stupid that is. The soldiers went around saying, if anybody asked you, just say somebody came and stole the body. Hey, somebody came and stole the body. Hey, yeah, well, you know what? I thought if you lost, a, you know, your, your prisoner or you lost something as far as what you were supposed to be watching, that you lost your life. Uh, yeah, well, not this time. Duh. The evidence was there. There were 500 witnesses that saw Jesus Christ risen. They were all in Galilee when Jesus showed up as he said that he would. The existence of the church 2,000 years later that meets on Sunday is evidence that Jesus Christ turned this world upside down. Before that, the Jews always met on the Sabbath. Why do churches meet on Sundays? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 2,000 years later, we're still meeting on Sundays to celebrate His resurrection. There's evidence in and of itself. Just the existence of the church is evidence of it. The testimony of other Christians, as subjective as that is, there's still testimony that Jesus Christ is alive and changing lives today. The difference between two groups of people is simply this. Some have heard it, and only some have believed it. They thought he was dead. They heard he was alive. And they met the living Christ personally by believing in him. You've got to ask yourself the same question. You may have heard it, and it doesn't matter, because hearing it's not going to get you anywhere with God. There's a point in time in your life where you've got to just surrender your will and say, Lord, I've heard it, and now I need to believe it. I want to step out in faith and trust what you have to say. It's not even a question of evidence anymore. It's a question of arrogance and stubbornness and pride that keeps people from believing in Jesus Christ. The evidence is overwhelming. I mean, men throughout human history have said if they had the evidence of the resurrection as attorneys, they'd never lose a case. Simon Greenleaf was one. He said, I'm going to disprove the resurrection. He ended up accepting Jesus Christ because the evidence was so overwhelming. The last thing is this. Once they believed, they went and they shared that good news with other people. Go back to Matthew chapter 28. Look at verses 16 through 20. 
says, but the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee. They finally got it. To the mountain which Jesus had designated. You know what's interesting? There's no record after the resurrection of them being told to go to a mountain. So we know from this account that Jesus had specifically told them where to meet him after his resurrection. The eleven proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. They finally went and did what God told them to do. It says, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. It says, but some were doubtful. Who were the ones doubtful? 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus appeared to over 500. I believe very simply that those 500 were on that mountain that day that they had heard and everyone ran to see whether Jesus would show up as he said. The disciples didn't doubt him anymore because they already fell at their feet and worshipped him. So they were convinced that he was who he claimed to be. But there were others that were there that were checking it all out and they were still doubtful. They heard and they even saw and yet that wasn't enough evidence either. And so as we look at this, it's interesting that the disciples were convinced once we've met him personally, that we've seen and tasted the goodness of God, the Bible says that we have a responsibility to obey his commands. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And the command that Jesus gives on this mountain after his resurrection, before his disciples, is one that we need to take heed to also today, and that is this. It says that Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, you know what's interesting? The angel said this, come and see, now go and tell. That's not too hard for anybody, is it? Come see, go tell. Come see, go tell. That's it. Come see, go tell. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and he's changed your life and you've tasted the goodness of God and know that it's true, then you have a responsibility now just to go tell. Come see, taste the goodness of God, now go tell other people. And that's what he told him to do. It involves three things. We'll close on this. First thing is this, the authority. The authority is based on Jesus Christ himself. See what he says? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Philippians 2 says, and Jesus Christ was given a name above every name. Highly exalted. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. God has given Jesus Christ all authority to judge mankind. Jesus Christ will judge you and I one day. Jesus Christ will judge you on whether you believed in him at the great white throne judgment or he will judge you as a believer whether or not you are faithful for the purpose of giving rewards. But one day we will stand before him. All authority has been given to me. You know, when Moses went to Pharaoh, he said, hey, uh, who should I say sent me? On what authority? By whose authority? When we go and tell our friends and our neighbors that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, we do so based on the authority that Jesus Christ has given us. And he has been given all authority. So when you go and someone, I go in a locker room today and I open the word of God and I say the same words that I share with you based on God's word, somebody says, well, what gives you the right? What gives you the power, the authority to say what you just said? Jesus Christ gives me that authority. All power and authority has been given to him. And he tells me to come see and then go tell. And I'm here to tell you right now, there's no other way to the Father but through him. You better believe him, not because I'm excited about it, but because all authority has been given to us to share that with other people. That's the authority. Now the activity is this, go therefore. Actually it means as you are going, make disciples. The word make disciples means basically an apprenticeship program. 
as we are going, we should have people around us who are willing to walk alongside of us and see what it's like to become a man or woman of God. That's why we're doing the one-on-one Bible studies. That's why it's important to make disciples. It's obedience to the Word of God. Jesus says, as you are going through life, make disciples. Don't be hesitant. Don't be afraid to say, as you see me walk in my Christian faith, then you walk the same way. The way you see me treat my wife, the way you see me treat my kids, the way you see me conduct myself in business, the way you see me study in the Word of God, the way you see me conduct myself when things aren't going well, the way you see me control my tongue and my, and my speech when I talk to other people, when I'm upset about certain things, the way you see me live, you do the same thing. Paul said the same thing. Walk in my footsteps. Follow my example. Don't be afraid to do it. And stop being hypocritical. If you can't tell people to walk the way you're walking, then you stop walking the way you're walking and start walking right. We're to go, and as we're going, make disciples of all, all nations. If you want to be in a Bible study, sign up in the back again. Mark's got a sign-up sheet. If you want to walk with somebody else that you think's further along in the Christian faith than you, then you walk with them and you learn from them what it means to be a man or a woman of God. But he also says this, and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see what he says? That we also need to be baptized. Baptism doesn't, doesn't forgive our sins. Baptism is a sign of obedience, and in that culture it was a sign of identification with Jesus Christ. We didn't do it, they didn't do it hidden in a church somewhere, or hidden in somebody's backyard or whatever. When people were baptized then, they walked out in the open in public, went down to the Jordan River to a river, and they said, I want to identify myself with Jesus Christ. I believe that he rose from the dead. I believe that he's the savior of the world. And I don't care what anybody else thinks about me at this point because I put him first before everything in my life. And I've, I've considered carrying the cross daily and following him. And they walked down the river and they were baptized. Let me ask you a question. If you've never been baptized and you've invited Christ into your life, then you're being disobedient. You need to be baptized. Why? Because he says to do it. Not because of anything else. The thief on the cross never was baptized. That didn't save him. He was saved because he believed in Christ. But if you've never been baptized, then hey, you know what? We'll have a sign-up sheet at the back of the room and we'll have, another, we'll have a baptism. We did a couple years ago at the beach. We're going to do it again. Why? Because the Word of God commands us to do what's right before God. If you've never been baptized and you've believed in Jesus Christ, then you need to be baptized. Sign up on your way out. It's time that you're obedient to the Word of God. And we're to teach them to observe. All, Jesus says, teach them to observe all that I commanded you. That's not all there is, but this is a start. If you can just be obedient in a couple areas this week, then that may be a big jump over last week, and we're moving in the right direction. And that's what he says we need to do. And I like this. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That is not a future promise. That is a fact. When you go to work, he's with you. When I go to the locker room today, he's with me. When you go to school this week, he's with you. When you go on the athletic field, he's with you. He promises to be with you always. Now, some of us are like a little girl that I heard of who was afraid to fly. And as she was up in the airplane, she was at 35,000 feet. The captain says, we're cruising at 35,000 feet. And the little girl looked out the window, and man, everything was disappearing way down there, and she was scared to death. And her mom tried to comfort her and says, don't you believe that Jesus is, is with you? She says, well, yeah, but. She says, what do you mean, yeah, but? She, the little girl says, but, but Jesus said, lo, I am with you always. <laughs> You know, some of you act like you pay to get in or something. <laughs> okay, let's close with this. Let's let God have the last word. 1 John chapter 5. 1 John 5. We read these words, starting with verse 10. The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. 
the one who has not believed, does not believe God has made God a liar because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his son. It says, and this is the testimony or the witness of God. Can you imagine? Do you swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you yourself? I mean, that's what we have going on here. God is testifying to us. It says, and this is his witness, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. He who has the Son has the life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Do you believe that or not? If you have the Son of God and you've invited Him into your life, the Bible says you have eternal life and forgiveness with God through Jesus Christ. That absent from this body, one day you will be present with the Lord. If you refuse to believe that, the Bible says you do not have that eternal life or forgiveness with God. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Those who invited Christ in their life know with confidence and assurance because the Spirit of God is testifying with our spirit right at this moment that, you know what, when I die, I know that I'm going to be in heaven with God. You know, not because of anything I've done, not because I ever teach the Bible study, taught a Bible study, or, or ever preached the Word. It's because I believe simply in faith that Jesus Christ died for my sins. If you refuse to believe that, then God says that you also have life eternal, but that life eternal will be separated from God for all of eternity in a place that He calls hell. All of us will be resurrected one day. The Bible says because Jesus rose from the dead, that death will never hold any one of us, that all of us will be resurrected one day. The question is, what resurrection do you have to look forward to? About more than heaven, because he doesn't want any of us to go there. He wants all to be forgiven, to believe in him. But that's the resurrection that we have to look forward to. In closing, there were three men, they were good friends. They spent a, a, basically a lifetime doing things together, hunting and fishing and all these great episodes of adventure. And uh, one of the older men had become a Christian and invited Jesus Christ into his life not long before one of their last trips. And as they went on this trip, they were all sitting around the campfire as dawn was approaching and they were sitting drinking tea. And one guy asked the other two guys and said this. He said, Let, let's, let's share what our greatest adventure was, what the greatest experience our life has been. And the one goes first and said, well, my greatest experience was a time that I was in India. And we were tracking a tiger and we tracked him for six days straight. And at the end of an exhausted hunt, we had turned and there this tiger was standing right behind us. And as it jumped at us, I took and I fired my rifle and that tiger fell dead at my feet. I was convinced I was going to die. The second said, I was in Alaska and we were on a hunt for, for bear and it was a grizzly hunt. And he goes, an almost identical thing happened to me. For two days we chased this bear. And while we weren't expecting it, it had circled back behind us and it came and charged us from behind. And I turned and as I fell to the ground, I shot and I killed the bears that landed right on my legs because I still got the bear rug in my home as evidence of this great experience. And they looked at the last man who had just become a Christian and the old man said to them, my greatest experience, it hasn't happened yet. And they said, what do you mean it hasn't happened? And he went on to tell them of how he invited Jesus Christ into his life and believing what God says about the Word of God, says my greatest experience is yet to happen because one day the Bible says that when I die, I'll be absent from this body and I'll be present with the Lord. And not only that, but we will be resurrected one day. The greatest experience of my life hasn't taken place yet, but is yet to take place in the future. And he spent an hour sharing with them how he came to know Christ and the wonderful promises of God that he found as he studied the Word of God. I don't know about you, but if your greatest experiences are behind you, then you haven't spent much time studying the Word of God if you're a Christian. If your greatest experiences are behind you, then you don't have any hope of salvation if you're not a Christian, and it's time that you believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. We will all be raised from the dead because Jesus conquered death 
And that's what the resurrection is all about. He paved the way, and you and I, one day, will be resurrected. And you either spend eternity with him because you believed in Christ, or you'll spend eternity in hell because you rejected him and refused to believe in him. The question for you is this. It's your choice that God gives you. What I would recommend is you choose wisely. Father, thank you for this message that we have through your word. We just thank you for the truth of your word. God, help us to become people who are more mindful of your word, the power of your word. God, the Apostle Paul says that he refused to recognize anything else in life but to know Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. God, help us to be people that understand the simplicity of the gospel. God, I know there are people here and people that are listening that have heard about Jesus dying for their sins. They've heard about him raising from the dead, and yet that's all they've done is just hear it. God, you tell us that we need to act upon it, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. God, they heard the truth, and now they're accountable and responsible. God, may they choose wisely. If you're here and you've never asked Christ into your life, just pray a simple prayer. God, I believe what you say about Jesus, that he died for my sin. The evidence is overwhelming. He rose again from the dead. And I've always heard that, but I've never believed it in my heart. God, help me to believe. Help me to open my heart to you and that you come in and you change me and make me a new person. I want to experience the resurrection of the righteous to spend eternity with you in heaven. God, I don't want to go to hell. And I just thank you based on your word that I can trust you and that if I have the Son, that I have life. Father, we just thank you for your word. And we just thank you for the results as we preach it, as it goes forth, and as people respond. We thank you that we're part of fulfilling prophecy, that you are gathering to yourself a people for all of eternity. And we just pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.